Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. And amen. You can have a seat. I haven't had to say that for like four months now. You can have a seat. This is pretty good, eh? We got a little shade, got a little breeze. We got some people for the sake of the live stream. Can the people make a little noise? Thank you guys for coming out today. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Um, the building is open. If you need to use the bathroom, we'll try and keep that one family at a time, but you can, you can go through and the building's been cleaned and uh, the bathrooms have been cleaned, so um, we should be good with that. We are... Uh, we are well social distanced for the sake of the live stream. We, we had the, the, some, some spaces marked out earlier this week and, and we're masked up. After service, however, we will not be the social distancing police. So based on your, your level of sensitivity to all that, you may want to take off sooner than later because um, we, we're not sure how everybody's going to be about that. But thank you guys for being here. We're in this series in Nehemiah. It's week four and the series... Um, We've titled Respond and Rebuild and Restore, and so it's responding to a crisis and rebuilding a city and restoring a people. And we're in the part of the series where uh, Nehemiah gets um, to Jerusalem, and he starts the process of building the wall. And I think it's a pretty appropriate, like, part of the series for the week when, when we have our first gathering in a few months, because he's gathering this group of people together um, after a long time apart. And um, so we're not we're, this is like an oasis in the desert for us. We wanted to try this and see how it goes and see how it feels. And then when, in the next few weeks, we'll let you know uh, how frequently we're going to do this. But um, my early return on this is this feels pretty great. And it's good to be with the body of Christ again. Uh, but it fits, this, it fits this passage. So I'm going to start talking about COVID for just a minute because COVID is the reason that we haven't been here and uh, that we're in all this. And is as as much as all the bad things about COVID, there are a few things about COVID that I think have been have pushed us in good ways. And, and so for a lot of us, it's caused us to spend more time together with the people that we're closest to, the people we live with, the people we're in most proximity to, and that are most important to us that we miss from time to time because our lives are so busy um, in regular life. And so that's been a good thing because um, it's grown some relationships and forced some issues out in some relationships, and it's been good. Uh, I think we're past that. Like our family is going out of town this week and we had some options up on the board of uh, where we wanted to go out of town. And one of them was the mountains. We've done that the last few summers and we go to the mountains so that we can be together as a family alone with nothing else. And so we were talking through that option and my kids are like, dad, we've, we're connected enough. We don't need to go to the mountains to connect with each other. Like we're done with that. And so we decided to go up to the beach again to my in-laws house. Um, and so we've been, we've been together. Uh, and that's been good. I think it's also been good that we've been alone. Uh, and so I guess those are contradictory, but, it, but, but they're true that it, um, we've, we've had more time uh, by ourselves. We haven't had access to as many of our idols, as many of the things that in our lives that may, maybe we seek life from in unhealthy ways uh, are distractions. You know, sports can be a distraction for me. There haven't been any sports to be distracted by for a few months. And that's been a good thing uh, for me. It may be I don't know, going out and buying stuff, shopping. You can certainly buy as much stuff as ever on Amazon, but it might not be as much fun. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it could be work. 
and it, people are working and probably some people are working a ton, but you can't be in the office with the people and sucked into that and stay there forever and use that as an excuse to avoid some other things in life. Uh, it could be uh, friends. And so whatever it is, um, we spent more time alone and you can only binge watch stuff for so long, like I'm done with it, all right? And so that sucks us into this place where we're challenged, and I've talked about this a few times over the last few months, where we're pushed with, can we be content without those distractions that we normally fill our lives with? And that's a good thing for us, to be pressed into that with the Lord. There's a quote that I've used a few times um, over the years from Blaise Pascal that's like a 350-year-old quote, which is why it's so great. He said, 350 years ago, he said, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. 350 years ago. I thought all people did 350 years ago was stay quietly in their room and read books, but apparently they were just like us. And so it's good for us to be challenged and pushed into that spot. And it's pushed me towards like seeking contentment in the Lord in new ways and asking myself, why is it hard to just be quiet before the Lord and be content? And so that's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's not all good. And we were having a conversation in staff meeting and, and someone said, there's a fine line between you know, that space of learning to be content and just being kind of depressed <laughs> because there's, it's like there's no place to go. Like we don't know what to put our hope in. We don't know what to look forward to because we're in such uncertain times. And so I've talked to a number of people throughout this whole thing that are just kind of like they're lethargic, you know, because we don't know what's ahead of us um, and there's not as much to do and we're less confident that we'll be able to do the things that we set our mind to doing because of all that's, um, that's going on with us. Uh, and so I would say that, this is how I think about, I've thought about this the last few weeks, is that we're surviving COVID and, and most of the people in our church are surviving COVID just fine, but we are not thriving in the midst of COVID. We're surviving, but we're not thriving. And that's similar to these people that we're reading about today in the book of Nehemiah when he comes back to Jerusalem because they're in exile. They've been away from their homeland for 150 years. Some of them have come back and they found their homeland in ruins and they don't know what the path is forward. And they're still in a bit of um, exile. And we're in that. We're isolated from each other. We're isolated from normal life. And a lot of days it feels like we are, we're moving forward, but we're walking in mud that some days is ankle deep and other days is knee deep. And some days feels like it's chest deep and you're just trying to figure out a way to go forward. And this is highlighted like this morning for me highlights that <laughs> I someone else told me like the first time our church got back together, it was really emotional and I didn't know what to expect. And there is this can be a good thing about COVID absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I didn't I mean, I, I knew I missed this, but I didn't know how much I missed us like us, the body of Christ meeting in the name of Jesus. Uh, together and we need each other we need encouragement we need accountability we need to hear how God is speaking and moving around us and through us we need we need mission we need the church we need this and we can relate to these people in Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah because they're in a similar place and so this passage is going to show us a bit about ourselves and where we are and what we need and what we're missing and I hope it'll name that for you so here's the passage it's in your handout uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 I'm going to start in verse 11 so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down 
and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up by in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. I don't know where all those places are. Neither do you. It's okay. He went and checked, got the lay of the land, checked everything out. And it says the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he spends a few days and nights. He gets to Jerusalem. He's heard about it. He wants to check it out for himself, check some of his assumptions about the project that's ahead of him. And he doesn't tell anybody uh, what he's doing. And so they, they, I don't know what they think he is, like some guy from headquarters just checking in on him. And it would be logical for them, if you get, put yourself in their shoes, to, to look at him with some suspicion because of who he is and what his life has been like and who they are and what their life has been like. Because he's had it really good. He hangs out with the king of like the world at that point, you know, and they've had it pretty rough. And so it makes sense that they're not sure that he gets who they are and what they're going through. And so that's the first thing I see about this. Nehemiah as a leader is really good at meeting his people where they're at. And um, he has a, a high degree of emotional intelligence with them. He gets that it's a tough situation. He doesn't want to get their hopes up prematurely. He wants to get the lay of the land, check his assumptions about the job that needs to be done. There's a phrase, um, there's a phrase I, I've heard from time to time that you want to under promise and over deliver. Have you heard that phrase before? You want to underpromise and overdo. This is the first time in months I've been able to say that and see you raise your hands. This is so great. Uh, and you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So I have a, our neighbors are getting their kitchen done, and so they got a contractor. And contractors, I wouldn't want to be a contractor because they face this all the time. You know, you got to bid aggressively against other contractors to get a job, but then you got to depend on subcontractors to get that job completed. And so just notoriously, that's a difficult process. And it's a little bit of a metaphor for leadership. You know, you want to set expectations right. You want to push forward and set them high, but you don't want to get to a place where you can't deliver on the expectations that you've set out. And I feel like that's what he's doing. He knows these people are beat down and they are discouraged. They probably don't have a great sense of direction and hope. Um, he, he holds his cards tight to the vest his first few days around the folks, whatever anxiety he has about the project, he doesn't let them in on it. He doesn't let them see it. And I think that can be hard uh, as a leader. There is a, um, a book I read years ago by Colin Powell. Uh, you guys remember Colin Powell? See, I just wanted to do that to get people to respond to me again because we're here this week. Yeah, he was the general that should have run for president. It would have been great if he ran for president, uh, but he didn't. And he, he in, in his book, talked about his style of making decisions. He said he likes to surround himself with really smart people, get them in a room together, pick a fight, like get them talking stuff out, and then kick them out of the room and make a decision is how he likes to do it. A really collaborative style of leadership. And I appreciate that. And, and that's it's, it's how I work, uh, probably to a fault. Nehemiah doesn't do that in this, in this situation. He's not asking for opinions because I sense he knows where these folks are at and how they need to be led. And leadership is influence. I think everyone has influence, some sphere of influence. And so I really think everyone is a leader in, in, some, um, in some capacity. And like understanding people's tolerance and capacity to absorb your anxiety in a process takes a lot of intuition as a leader. These are, we're in hard times, right? I try really hard to be apolitical in my sermons, but I, I would say that the president hasn't done a great job 
of giving us leadership in the issues that we're facing. He's been absent. I don't think I'm, I don't think that's, I think that's a pretty common opinion, you know, because we need, we need leadership. And they may have thought that about Nehemiah for the first few days because he keeps, he, like I said, he holds his cards tight to the vest and wonder what he's doing there. So then he drops this, and this is really where we're going to spend the, the rest of the day. Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. Then Nehemiah says, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So I'm guessing this isn't the full text of his speech. I'm guessing we're getting a summary of it. There's more to it. But the movements that he goes through just in those few, um, those few sentences are, are huge. Um, as leaders, it's what we need to give the people around us. As followers, this is what we're lacking and why I think we're experiencing the things um, that we're experiencing right now, and it's hard to give in this moment. So first, Nehemiah is honest with the people about the depth of their problem. He starts by saying, you see the trouble we're in. Uh, you see the trouble that we're in. Here's the problem. And you can't just blow by that. Leaders don't sugarcoat things. Leaders face problems head on. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates are destroyed. It was once a glorious city, like a, a in the in the annals of world history, one of the most glorious cities. Solomon was the wisest and richest king in the world. But that that time of their glory was long gone. They know that it's their fault um, as the people that they're in the situation uh, that they're in, and and this is where they are. And so leaders leadership. I, I heard someone say this about a year ago that leadership is a series of unlamented losses, or that life can be if you let it be a series of unlamented losses and so and when we don't deal with our losses properly um that ends up coming out we move forward in unhealthy ways so this guy said this every loss in life demands an appropriate season of grieving whether you've lost your favorite person or your favorite pen every loss in life demands an appropriate season of grieving whether you've lost your favorite person or your favorite pen and an emotionally intelligent leader gets that and so he starts with hey we have lost something we have lost a lot and this stinks and he gives them the permission and really calls them into the process of grieving and that's a good leader you got to start where you are um, now the question in everybody's mind is got to be well is there hope can we move forward so um, you start there but you don't stay there and so he gives them a specific path he gives them a specific path forward uh, you can't just leave people in the grief of the trouble that we're in he doesn't say you know i've looked around the last few days this is, this is really, really bad. This is bad. I'm going back to Persia. Good luck. He doesn't do that. You know, he says, here's my solution. Let's build the wall. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now, if I'm them, on the one hand, I'm thinking, uh, you know what, buddy, that thought did cross our mind before, you know, <laughs> like we're not stupid. We know. On the other hand, I'm thinking, uh, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the guy um to lead us forward maybe this guy knows some things that we don't know maybe we should give this guy a chance and so we as people uh we need to be led we are made to be led this is inherent to the gospel you know we are we're designed in the image of god to to follow him um to be led by god 
the reason that we needed the gospel is because we refuse to be led by him and we just lead ourselves. And, and in Jesus, we can be reconciled to him and surrender ourselves to Jesus and put ourselves, submit ourselves to his leadership again. We're made to be led. And it's ultimately by God, but God leads us through leaders that he places over this. And some of those leaders are godly leaders and some of those leaders are not godly leaders, um, but we're made to be led. We need leaders and we need leaders. We need to let leaders lead. We need them to lead. So he steps into the situation and says, follow me. Third thing, Nehemiah makes it their project. He says, come, let us, let us do this together. I didn't come here to do this on my own. And he says, so that we may not suffer derision, so that we might do that. We are made for we. We are made for we. We need we. And that's why you're here today. And that's why I am so happy that you're here today. <laughs> because we've missed this, right? Um, even at a distance, we've missed this. We need we. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so let's not stop gathering together. And that's not to... Um, I understand why people aren't here. I understand why we haven't been gathering together. Uh, but it, it highlights that we miss this. We need this because we're made for this. We're the body of Christ and we've been operating in isolation. And we should not thrive in a scenario where we as the body of Christ are operating in isolation. We need we. And Nehemiah gets this and he makes it clear to them that this is not a me, not Nehemiah project. This is a we, the people of Israel uh, project and calls them into that. You ever had a leader um, where you're, you're pretty confident it's a me project, it's their project, and you know, they're, they're using you to accomplish their agenda? It's a big difference between a me leader and a we leader. And, um, and, and you'll do that begrudgingly for a while, but you'll look for a way to get out uh, when you're in that scenario. And Nehemiah, like you really get the sense when you read through the rest of Nehemiah that he's not that type of leader. You go to chapter three, um, which I'm not going to read through, but he just lists all the people and lists all the things that they've done. And so this guy went with his people to this part of the wall and to this gate and they rebuilt it and it took them this long and they killed it, man. That's what he says. He mentions the first one is Eliashib, who's the high priest. And so that's a big deal because the high priest is a leader. And so his leaders are leading and the high priest is getting his hands dirty. And the high priest isn't necessarily the guy that you think is going to pick up a hammer. But Nehemiah is that type of leader, and you've known leaders that they put their people out there and say, man, the people did this, and it was great, and they don't need to talk about themselves, and Nehemiah is that type of leader. Uh, Nehemiah tells them why it will be worth it. He tells them why it will be worth it. And so I said last week, this is a big, bold idea. There's a pretty good chance this isn't going to work. Like if the odds makers are not high on this project, and nobody knows that better than the people Nehemiah is talking to in Jerusalem there have been attempts to rebuild the walls and the temple already with limited success. They know the opposition because they've experienced the opposition. They know this a whole lot better than Nehemiah knows this because they've been through it. But he paints a picture of a preferred future and again exercises this intelligence even in doing that. He says, let's do this thing. And if we do this thing, we will no longer suffer derision. He speaks to their heart. And he says, we will once again have dignity as a people. Wouldn't that be great? Um, he doesn't say the glory days of Solomon are coming back. 
You know, he doesn't say, hey, let's rebuild this thing and we'll take down those Persians. He doesn't say that. He says, we will have dignity again as a people. We can have security again as a people. We can defend ourselves. We can have identity as, again as a people. We don't have to go back to the past. We can go forward to a better future. And so he tells them it's going to take work, but it's going to be worth it. He's speaking to a group of people he knows are surviving, and he wants them to thrive. And he's giving them a picture of what that looks like. Finally, Nehemiah directs them to put their confidence in the Lord and not in Nehemiah. So this, I'm going to reread this last line from that passage. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Uh, they have to be tempted to ask, like, why should we follow you? We don't know you. Um, you've never done this before. We've tried this before. We know how hard it is. And he didn't say, well, I haven't done this, but I've done this, 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 and this. He doesn't, he doesn't say, um, you know, the most powerful guy in the world is a close personal friend. He's committed to the project. Like, he doesn't lean first into that, which is probably what I would have been tempted to do. He starts with how God's hand had been on him and led him to this place to lead them. And he probably recounts what we've been through in chapters one and two. You know, I'm imagining this part of that talk goes, goes like this. He said, Han and I came from Jerusalem to Persia. You know Han and I because he, he's lived here. Uh, and he told me about you guys, and it crushed me. I don't even know you guys, but I heard what was, what was like here, and it crushed me. And so I prayed, and I fasted, and I prayed, and I fasted, and I prayed, and I fasted for four months. I just was on my face before God saying, God, what? What are we going to do about this? And I felt like God said, go back there and rebuild Jerusalem. And I was like, God, are you kidding me? Me, go back there and rebuild Jerusalem? I'm a cupbearer. And God said, go back there and rebuild Jerusalem. And I was confident in that. So I went to the king to talk to him about it. And the king and I are pretty tight. But I didn't know what to say or how exactly to say it. One night at dinner, the king could tell this was really weighing me down. And so he just asked me, you know, what's wrong? And I thought, well, this is the time. I got to talk to the king. And so I prayed again and I opened my mouth and I told him it's killing me that my homeland is like this and my people are going through this and I got to do something about it. And I want to go back to Jerusalem and I want to rebuild it and I need your help to do it. And then I shut my mouth and I thought this probably isn't going to go well because that's how we tend to think in situations like that. And, in, and he probably said the king looked at me and then he looked at his wife and he looked at me and he looked at his wife and he looked at me and he said, how long are you going to be gone? And I thought, man, he went for it. Like, this is great news. And so I told him and, and he let me go. And he didn't do that because I'm some great speaker or I'm so accomplished. I'm a cupbearer. But he did it because God wants this to happen. Y'all, that's what he told them in Jerusalem. God wants this to happen. And that type of confidence is possible for him because he prayed and he fasted for four months and sought the Lord's direction. If you'd prayed and fasted for something for four months and God was leading you, you wouldn't tell people to be confident in you or the king either. You'd tell them to be confident in God and what God has planned. We need this right now. We need all this right now. Uh, I, I felt this passage. COVID has made us a people that are in a type of exile and it's not just a COVID thing. It's a little bit of a life thing. Like we're always in some type of exile. Before COVID is a church, we're seeking out God's preferred future for our church. And COVID has, you know, magnified that. You know, we had these for a year, we schemed about how to relaunch our home groups. And then we relaunched our home groups and it was going great. And then COVID. Uh, 
And so now we're, we've got to figure out how to move forward in the midst of that. We've been engaged in conversations about race and culture and church for a few years, and the last few months have magnified that. And so how do we move forward? I can think about it just in terms of our family or your family or, you know, your track as an individual. We are surviving but not thriving because we need to be called together. We need to be led forward, and we need direction not to come from man but to come from God. Now it gets a little bit harder <laughs> when you get into the individual stuff. So let me filter this through like COVID. Do we see the trouble that we're in um, with COVID? And do we see the trouble we're in like we do? Do we agree on the trouble we're in with COVID? We really don't, right? Like that's part of our problem is that we're having a hard time agreeing um, what, the trouble, what the trouble is. This week I, I found an article that was, it's, it was 10 reasons your church members are ornery. 10 reasons your church members are ornery. That doesn't mean in general. It means like right now in the midst of COVID, why they're ornery. Reason number one was they're weary or tired. Reason number two was they're confused. They're confused because even the experts don't, be in, don't seem to be on the same page with what we're going through right now. And reason three was that they're fearful because it's a challenge to fight fear with the barrage of bad news that we get every, every single day. We don't know the trouble we're in. We, don't, we, we disagree with it, and then the disagreement is the thing that ends up, that ends up being the new trouble that we're in is that we disagree with each other about it. So what's that path forward? I mean, we're led in pockets, you know? Like, we've led as a church because we think the path forward is wear a mask, and we're gonna manage risk, and if we thought that this was a really risky proposition, being out here socially distanced with a mask, outside with a breeze, based on everything we know, the risk for this is like next to nothing, or we wouldn't be here right now. And so that's how we understand, um, that's how we understand the risk, and we understand the precautions we're taking as a way to biblically love your neighbor and submit to the authorities that God has placed over that. Uh, but beyond that, like the trouble we're in isn't just COVID, the trouble that you're in, and maybe more of the trouble we're in is our inability to come to any type of unity when it comes to something like this and the fracture that it's, it's shown. And so the, that's the trouble we're in and the opportunity that we have and how we can be confident God has called us forward is that we as a church have a chance to show people how you, how you get together when you disagree about things, you know, and that our collective unity is more important than our individual opinions when we're dealing with uncertain facts. Our collective unity is more important than our individual opinions when it comes to uncertain facts. And so as a church, we have a chance to model for our culture what it looks like to agree to disagree about some things and to move forward in unity in spite of disagreeing about some things. And we can be confident of that, that the Lord wants us to do that because he wants us to model unity as the church to show the, to show the world around us um, what it's like. Is that siren like going in circles so it'll just stay in our range the whole time? Okay. Um, and is it worth it if we can do that, model that type of unity and demonstrate to the world around us what, what type of unity is possible in the church? What if we at the church, like if the culture looked at us right now and said, man, we're all over the place and at each other's throats and the church is a little bit all over the place, but they've figured out a way to come together in the midst of this. They realize that that's not us, that there's a power behind this and there's a potential for that. You move through what we're going through with race as a culture and you can, you can do the same thing. Do we see the trouble that we're in? I mean, we've got a disagreement on the nature of the trouble. Hopefully we agree that we're in, we're in some trouble, you know, but they, and, and I hope we agree. We got to take some steps to, to learn about the trouble that we're in. I was up, um, I'm still reading this biography 
on uh, Ulysses S. Grant because I tried Moby Dick and that didn't work out well. I dropped it based on your feedback when I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Honestly, I thought it was going to be like Jaws with a whale in one of those cool ships from the 1800s, and it wasn't. It was horrible. Don't read it. But I went back to Grant and I was reading it. I was reading it at 4.30 this morning because I woke up at 4.15 having dreams about rain, honestly. I thought I heard rain, and then I had like a dream, a vision of a radar screen covered with rain because of this, apparently, anxiety about this, and, and God has been gracious to us this morning. But what I read about in this biography of Ulysses Grant was a Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1875 to ensure that people of color had equality in public accommodation, you know, in restaurants and, and all the things, and it, and it protected their right to vote because things went bad in the South quick after the war. 1875, and they passed it, but then they just didn't enforce it, and we ended up with the Jim Crow South for 100 years. Like, we've been dealing with this problem for a long time, and we're not done dealing with the problem. And the, again, the path forward, like, we have, as a church, have a chance to, to move in a direction regardless of what our culture does. And God has set us up as a church through a friendship with Chosen Generation um, and through the leading that he put on Ryan and Whitney's heart a couple years ago that we're in a position where, where we can move forward in this. And it is a lot of listening and talking and understanding and relating and just friendship and love and, uh, and, and change, you know? And, um, and it's thoughtful and the solutions are you know, that we're at are probably not the solutions that we were at a couple years ago and not the most obvious solutions, but there's a path forward that's at its core is real relationship um, and being willing in a sense to be led by the folks that chosen and our understanding. Can we be confident that God's put us on that path? Absolutely, we can be confident. Um, and again, we have the chance to demonstrate unity as a church and particularly in our relationship with chosen generation and send a message to the world around us of what's possible. And will that be worth it? Absolutely that will be worth it to play our part in a fight that people have been fighting for hundreds of years and a path forward. And um, we've been doing that on Sunday nights and it's been fantastic and I'd still encourage you, uh, you can still jump in on that in those conversations and they've been really good. Um, as a church, as a church, do we see the trouble that we're in? You know, again, as I said, we've been going through this process and are always kind of in a process of evaluating where we are as a church and where God wants us to be. And we relaunched our groups and then COVID. And so what's the path forward? I don't know what it is, but it's not the isolation that we've been experiencing for the past um, few months. And some of our groups have really pushed and tried to figure out how to meet. And I think other groups didn't because of things that came up and because we thought COVID was gonna last like a couple weeks, right? Thought we wouldn't be meeting as a church for two weeks, four weeks, then we'd be all be back together. COVID hasn't gone away and it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. And so we need to continue to push forward um, to figure out solutions. And if your home group hasn't been meeting, uh, like get it together, like figure it out. I, you know, just say, okay, we thought it was gonna be a few weeks. It isn't, we need to get back together because we need each other, because we need each other. Our home group has been meeting via Zoom. I think we met live once, but via Zoom has been pretty good. Right, Andrew? Like the Floyds are here. We got some folks from our home group here and it's been, uh, it's been good. Um, people have been in their homes. They probably talk a little bit more because they're comfortable in their environment. Honestly, you don't, have to, you don't have to travel. Like there's some convenience to meeting via Zoom. I can see us making that a part of our home group routine going forward that we have a meeting or two a month, even when we can get back together. Um, but but it's, we're surviving right now. We need to figure out a way to thrive. Um, this list of 10 reasons your church members are ornery. So number seven, 
this really doesn't relate to my point, but I always want to pick on social media. They see so much negativity on social media. So this guy said, social media is a magnifying glass to negativity. It gives a voice to those who were rightly ignored in the past. It gives a voice to those who were rightly ignored in the past. And pay attention to that because that's a good word right there. But the next two relate directly to us, the church. They miss gathering with their friends was number eight. They miss gathering with their friends. Like we, we miss this. We can survive without this, but we cannot thrive without this. And numbers show that, that the live stream viewing numbers have been plummeting over the last few months. I've had a couple people like repent to me and confess this week. Hey, I just haven't been tuning in because of kids or because it just depresses me because it's not church. And so they'll listen to the podcast, but they just can't, they can't, it's hard to keep doing it. And so we missed this. And number nine on it was um, th- they've lost their focus. They've lost their outward focus. They've lost their outward focus. And um, he said, when we are focusing on what's wrong with our lives, we are not focusing on reaching and ministering to others. A self-focused church is an ornery church. And that's hard in normal times to keep ourselves outward focused. It's even harder in the midst um, midst of COVID. And that type of stuff keeps me up at night. You know, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. And so we're built for mission as a church. And how do we reach people with the gospel in the midst of a pandemic when sharing your faith with them is even harder than it normally is, but when people feel their need for Jesus more than they normally do? You know, what's the path forward for that? And so, like, this is what we're praying and fasting for as leaders of your church is what's the new normal going to look like? Because we have opportunities to reach people. A live stream has been a blessing of COVID for us, and we'll keep that going um, and we have opportunities to reach people in the future that we haven't been able to reach in the past, but we got to figure that out and we need God to lead us. We went through an exercise um, a few weeks ago about like one or two words that you want to describe your church in the future. And one of my phrases was spirit powered. I want our church to be spirit powered in ways that hasn't been spirit powered before. And if we have to wrestle with God like Jacob did on his way back to Israel, like we'll wrestle with him like that. Um, but we need God's, God's leading and we need God's blessing on our church. So, so those are some, like Nehemiah gives us a, like a, a pattern for how to be led forward and we can, we can work that out in our lives. And, and you, then you go back to Nehemiah and see how the people respond. So Nehemiah is leading these people. He's throwing it out to them. Like, let's rebuild the walls. I, I told them to be confident, not in me, but in God, because God was in this. And so for every leader, like then you just got to wonder, are people going to follow you know, there's a, a saying, if you think you're leading and you turn around and no one is following, then you're only taking a walk. And there's always that moment as a leader where you got you to gotta just walk and see if anybody's going to follow. Will the people follow? So this is how they respond. And they said, let us rise up and build. And the people said, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. So church, let us rise up and build. Let us strengthen our hands for the good work. When it comes to COVID, let us present a united front. Let's find a way to disagree on the, the things that we disagree on like in a, in a civil way and move forward and show unity as a church for the greater, the greater good to come out of that, that people can see what it looks like to be unified in the Lord. When it, comes to, um, when it comes to racial justice, let's do the same thing and show a fractured society what it looks like to repent and to move forward in that and to seek understanding and, and to demonstrate unity in that. And let's not settle for isolation as a church, but gather together in, in whatever way of doing it makes sense for us now. And let's not press pause on our mission as the church, uh, but more than ever, seek out where God is at work around us 
and be a part of the things that he's doing. Father, thanks for um, this morning. Thanks for blessing us with, with no rain and blessing us with some shade and blessing us with a breeze and God blessing us with each other's presence and with each other's voices and blessing us um, more than all that, Lord, with your presence, that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there, Lord. And um, we feel your presence in this place this morning. God, we are a people um, that we need direction. We need a way forward. We need to see what the path is. We need to be led by you. And I think if we look for it, it's right there and we'll find it. It may not be directly at the issues that we're looking at, more at a bigger issue of what unity looks like in the Lord, to be led by the Lord um, and to surrender in some areas that we might understand things differently, but move forward in unity in the Lord, uh, trusting you to lead us into a better, a better place, Lord, into a better future. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your hope. We thank you that um, a story that's recounted 2,500 years ago can be just completely relevant to the things that we're dealing with every single day, Lord. And may we be led by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.